Hello, Irish fans, and welcome to Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. As always, I am your host, Alex Painter. I hope this episode, the 20th in show history, finds you all well in mind, body, and spirit as we as a country and as global citizens continue to battle the pandemic of the coronavirus. I do sincerely hope everyone is staying safe and staying healthy I'm really excited to share this episode. It's a good one, and I say that with a fair amount of confidence. So if you are a Notre Dame or college football fan, you may be familiar with the story, but we're going to take a pretty deep dive into it. So hopefully everyone, regardless of your familiarity, will leave with something. But before we do that, let's knock out some routine housekeeping, shall we? The show was founded in June of 2019, kicking off with a Heisman at Iwo Jima episode about the Springfield rifle himself, Angelo Bertelli, who went overseas and joined the Army and then fought at Iwo Jima, as the title would otherwise suggest. So I'm happy to share that March of 2020 represented the most episode downloads for a month in show history. So over the course of the month, three new episodes were released, including a conversation with Jeff Harrell, author of the upcoming Knut Rockney biography, Rockney of Ages. We pushed on to the patriarch of Tight NU, the story of Notre Dame's Jim Mutchler. And finally, we capped off the month with what I thought was a fun episode titled Rockney and the Babe, the collision of sports' earliest superstars. About Babe Ruth and Knut Rockney, they're, so they're interesting and paralleled, actually. Meteoric rises to fame, which kind of set them on a course of intersection in the late 1920s. So... I'd like to thank all of you who took the time to listen to some of the episodes this month. I mean, I understand that people have uh, probably, some people anyways, probably have a little bit more time indoors in their homes, maybe a little bit more extra time for podcast listening to over the past month. But irrespective of that, I am eternally grateful for the support. So, and speaking of support, a special thank you to the show's fourth consensus All-American, Brad Glazer of Williamsburg, Indiana. Thank you for sponsoring this episode. As I mentioned a couple episodes ago, Brad is the Elmer Layden of the show, who was Notre Dame's fourth consensus All-American and the third after George Gipp. And Layden was no slouch. He was a member of the legendary Four Horsemen and later coached the Irish for several successful seasons. So thank you, Brad, the Elmer Layden of the Onward to Victory podcast. Also thank you to Rob Drudy of Fort Wayne, Indiana, who is the show's fifth consensus All-American, which makes him fellow Four Horsemen, Jimmy Crawley. So Rob, thank you so much for uh, your donation to the show. And a very special thank you to Michael Finan of Rutherford, New Jersey, who has just become the show's sixth consensus All-American. So in real life, the program's sixth All-American was tough-nosed center Bud Boehringer, named to the All-American squad in 1926, just 94 short years ago. So how do I know he is tough, or he was tough, I should say? Well, he was a center for Coach Knut Rockney, and Rockney was known for putting one of the scrappiest guys on the whole team, regardless of their size at the position. So, speaking of, Boehringer was an All-American lineman, though he only tipped the scales at 189 pounds. So, 
thank you again, Michael, for joining the ranks. Thank you, Brad, and thank you, Rob, to all the consensus All-Americans, both present and past. And thanks to the recent funds, the show's advertising budget has been subsidized, so we have a lot of new listeners, and I'm really proud to say the show continues to reach more people. And if it seems as though the audio has improved, that's because it has. So some new equipment was purchased thanks to your donations. So uh, again, more on the uh, Consensus All-American program here in a minute, but thank you so very much again. And anyways, a friendly reminder, if you dig the show, you can find me on Apple Podcasts. So if you have an iPhone, it's just that purple podcast icon. Click, search for the show, subscribe. Um, We are also on Spotify and Podbean, uh, the Podbean mobile app, and at the website at onwardtovictory.podbean.com. As I mentioned, please like, subscribe, do whatever you got to do to make sure you're getting all the new episodes. I've got some really cool ones planned, and at the end of the show, I'll kind of share with you what they are. So please interact with the show on the Facebook page at facebook.com slash onwardtovictory. And uh, you can also send the show an email at onwardtovictorypodcast at gmail.com. I kind of told myself that I'd be a little bit uh, more diligent about sharing the comments and sharing the show messages uh, that that kind of come in every so often. So uh, on one of the advertisements for the Babe Ruth and Knut Rockney episode, uh, John Capazella, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, John Capazella of Dover, Ohio wrote, Very good. I love the commentary about George Gipp and halftime of the Notre Dame vs. Army game classic. So he was uh, referencing the the episode itself, but also we did a George Gitt minute at the end of the last episode that talked about kind of this humorous scene at the halftime uh, mark of the Army-Navy game, or excuse me, Army-Notre Dame game back in 1920. Uh, I also wanted to read a message from a gentleman by the name of Jim Wharton, who lives currently in Alta Vista, Virginia. He says, I am 89 years old and can't wait for September to come. I lived in South Bend for 40 years, and I've been to a lot of games. So thanks, Jim, for the message. I really appreciate it. And you and me both, I am just chomping at the bit, waiting for Notre Dame football. And we'll kind of see where this season goes. Hopefully the the pandemic doesn't derail anything. But, you know, ultimately, I think everyone's going to be erring on the side of caution here for the rest of the probably calendar year, to be honest. So we'll see where it goes. But thank you again for the messages. Um So if you'd like to name yourself to the aforementioned Onward to Victory Consensus All-American list, you can do so very simply. A $10 donation to the show will sponsor an episode and get your name called out as a Consensus All-American over the air. I'll even assign you a real-life Consensus All-American, as you just heard. You can donate at paypal.me slash onwardtovictory for a one-time donation, or if you want to donate a certain amount per month please visit patreon.com slash onwardtovictorypodcast. Any support is greatly, greatly appreciated, and 100% of it goes back into the show. So if you listen to other podcasts, you might note that some other podcasts have ads. And since this is a podcast that really does kind of use a story format, it's less about commentary. There is commentary, of course, but it's much more story-based, and I feel like nothing disrupts a story more than an ad right in the middle of it. So the donations help keep the show ad-free, for one. But as I mentioned before, it helps just get the show's name out there and also, you know, as I mentioned, the purchase of better audio equipment. So please note that any support is greatly appreciated. It goes directly back into the show. Uh, The show is free, as always. So if you're unable to donate to the show, I absolutely understand. And But please take the opportunity to share the show on Facebook or even just word of mouth to any of your friends or family who like Notre Dame, like history, like college football, anything like that. 
So, like I said, all the all the support is so greatly appreciated. And speaking of support, as always, thank you to Joseph Rakish, who allows the show to use his song, Knut Rockney, as the theme song. You can find the jam on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, pretty much wherever it is that you listen to music. So episode 20, pretty hard to believe, but per show tradition, let's assign the episode a representative who wore number 20 for the Irish. So this episode could belong to Alan Pinkett running back for Notre Dame from 1982 to 1985. Bob Gladio, running back from 1966 to 1968. Luther Bradley, a safety in the late 1970s. Or, perhaps turning to a more modern age, the C.J. Procise episode, another running back uh, from 2012 to 2015. And honestly, C.J. was probably one of my favorite backs of the last 10 or so years. So all of these men wore number 20. And as you can see, number 20 tends to look like it's kind of a sweet spot for some really good running backs in Notre Dame history. But given he is on some of the teams we are going to talk about, he's an Indiana guy from Muncie. And I really did enjoy the interviews he gave for the 125th anniversary of Notre Dame football here several years ago. We're going to give this one to safety, Luther Bradley. So, Luther Bradley episode, here we come. So this episode is the third which we have covered an individual game. So episode three was the game of inches about the 2012 game with Stanford. Episode 8 is when we talked about the game of the century, the 1993 game against Florida State. So I suppose since it's been, well, I guess, 12 episodes uh, since we've had one, we were due for a game episode. But this is actually the first episode where the stage is set in the 1970s. So this is actually a new decade for the show, and I'm really excited about it. So anyways, without further ado, I give you good for the soul. Joe Montana, and the 1979 Cotton Bowl Classic, right after this. All right, folks, get buckled in, grab a beverage, grab a snack. Let's get this thing going. Joseph Clifford Montana Jr. was born on June 11, 1956, in New Eagle, Pennsylvania, the only child to parents Joe Sr. and Teresa Montana. Joe Sr. was a manager for a financial company, and Teresa actually worked for the same company as an administrative assistant. In some ways, the younger Montana, with his laser focus and hyper-competitive nature, was born to be a quarterback. Geographical proximity certainly didn't hurt either. In a 1990 article written by Sports Illustrated, Western Pennsylvania was called, quote, the cradle of quarterbacks, soft coal and quarterbacks, steel mills and quarterbacks. Johnny Lujak from Connellsville, Joe Namath from Beaver Falls, George Blanda from Youngwood, Dan Marino from Pittsburgh, Tom Clements and Chuck Fusina from McKee's Rocks, Arnold Galifa from Denora, Terry Hanratty from Butler. It was Hanratty who was Montana's idol as a kid. Terry Hanratty of Notre Dame, the Golden Domer. Montana would throw footballs through a swinging tire in the backyard, just like Terry did. Why? Why do so many of them come from western Pennsylvania? Toughness, dedication, 
hard work and competitiveness, a no-nonsense, blue-collar background, says John Unitas from Pittsburgh, end quote. It's also of note, two episodes ago, we did an episode about Jim Mutchler. Though not a quarterback, he was kind of from this exact same area as well, the western Pennsylvania area. So Montana actually began his football career at age eight, which was a year younger than the minimum age of nine around town. His father went on ahead and listed his age as nine on the waiver form, and I guess no one seemed to ask any questions about it. So Montana grew and went on to star in baseball, basketball, and, of course, football at Ringgold High School. He ultimately earned the starting quarterback job as a junior. Soon after taking over the spot, the consensus was out. There were very few more perfect matches than Joe Montana under center as quarterback. Jeff Petrucci, his high school quarterback coach, once said, quote, You saw it in the midget leagues in high school. The electricity in the huddle when he was in there. How many people are there in the world? Three billion? And how many guys are there who can do what he can do? Him? Maybe Dan Marino on a good day. Perhaps God had a hand in this thing. End quote. It was no secret around town that Montana's quarterbacking idol was the aforementioned Hanratty. And Hanratty, as we talked about before, was himself a western Pennsylvania native. And when Montana was in high school, he made good in the National Football League as the backup to Terry Bradshaw for the hometown Pittsburgh Steelers. Before his professional career began in 1969, Hanratty was a three-year starter for the University of Notre Dame fighting Irish football team, even leading the team to the national championship in 1966. After Montana's senior year, he was named to the prestigious Parade Magazine All-American Squad. Irish head coach, the legendary Era Parsegian, took notice. Inviting him to come out to South Bend for a campus visit on January 19, 1974. The Irish football team had been crowned national champions themselves the season before in 1973. So Montana, taking a page directly out of the Hanratty playbook, graciously accepted the invitation and made his way to South Bend for the visit. Now, the exact date is mentioned because it is a noteworthy one in Irish athletics history. The Notre Dame men's basketball team were slated to square off against a UCLA team coached by luminary John Wooden that evening. Wooden's Bruins brought an 88-game winning streak into the contest. 88-game winning streak. And wouldn't you know it, the Irish would go on to score a 71-70 victory that night, snapping the longest string of one games in men's college basketball history. You can jump over to YouTube and watch the last few minutes of the game. No matter how many times I watch highlights from that era, I still I have to like kind of check my eyes when I don't see that three-point line. And I know for a lot of people, that's the era they grew up in. It wasn't the one I grew up in, so I always have to kind of pinch myself and realize, okay, yes, that's right. There was no three-point line at that time. But naturally, the Irish faithful stormed the court that night. And though I couldn't explicitly confirm it, I'd like to think that one of the bodies in the sea of overjoyed and euphoric fans that stormed the court belonged to 17-year-old Joe Montana. I don't think Era Parsegian could have picked a better night to try to woo a high-profile recruit to pick Notre Dame. And as it were, Montana did choose Notre Dame over several other football scholarships. And for what it's worth, he also chose Notre Dame over at least one basketball offer as well. 
The North Carolina State Wolfpack, coached then by Norm Sloan, had offered Montana a scholarship and a spot on their basketball team. To kind of help counter this offer, Irish basketball coach Digger Phelps even said he'd try to reserve Montana a spot on his team as well. I just had a love for Notre Dame at an early age, Montana said later. When I had the opportunity, I took it. I canceled all of my other visits. His college career didn't begin as well as I'm sure he hoped. From the Sports Illustrated uh, article again, quote, Montana saw no varsity action his first year and got only minimal playing time in the freshman games. Montana missed home. He would call his dad three, four times a week. Joe Sr. told him to hang in. On a whim, Montana once drove home in the middle of the night. Joe Sr. occasionally would make the eight-hour drive to watch Joe Jr. in an afternoon scrimmage, grab a bite to eat with his son, and then drive home to be at work the next day. His dad would sometimes show up in the middle of the night, and we'd all go out at 1 a.m. for a stack of pancakes, says Montana's freshman roommate, Nick DeChicho. It was crazy. Montana ultimately conquered his homesickness and a separated shoulder his sophomore year and captured the starting job as quarterback his junior year in 1977. That season, predominantly led by Montana, the Irish registered an 11-1 record, capping off their season with a 38-10 shellacking of famed running back Earl Campbell and the number one ranked and undefeated Texas Longhorns in the Cotton Bowl on January 2nd. 1978. Though Montana wasn't his sharpest, completing just 40% of his passes for 111 yards, the Irish defense and running attack stepped up big time, forcing six turnovers. The ground game completely controlled the pace of the game, gaining 243 yards on 53 attempts, or about 4.6 yards per rush. And they had some studs in the backfield too. Jerome Heavens piled up 101 rushing yards, and Richmond, Indiana native Vegas Ferguson added another 100 yards and punched in the final three Irish touchdowns. Just in case anyone was curious or if they forgot, I currently live in Richmond, and Vegas is still something of a legend here. Yeah, I'd love to have him on a show here in the future, but anyways, the Irish were crowned national champions. But, as it were, this is not the cotton bowl that was promised to be covered in depth, friends. Let's skip forward to the beginning of the next season. So the Irish are now defending national champions with now senior Joe Montana still under center. And in looking at the 1978 football review from the school archives, quote, they spoke of Notre Dame's suicidal schedule and the unlikelihood of the Irish to successfully defend their national championship of 1977. They pointed to Michigan. They included Michigan State. They mentioned Pittsburgh. They spoke of Tennessee. They emphasized Southern Cal, but they spoke too lightly of Missouri." End quote. The Irish squared off against the Missouri Tigers at home to begin the season. Heading into the fourth quarter, the game was tied 0-0. Literally 0-0. A Missouri field goal put the Tigers up for good 3-0 in the fourth, which was the final score of the game. 3-0, Missouri. The whole campus was shocked by the defeat. At the traditional 5:15 post-game mass at the Basilica of the Sacred Heart, a dejected Father Robert Griffin announced that 
you will be skipping the homily that day. Now the following game, after leading 7-0 and 14-7, the Irish wilted down the stretch, yielding three straight touchdowns to lose to Bo Schembechler's Michigan Wolverines 28-14, again at home in South Bend, their record falling to 0-2. So I had to know, and I had to do a little bit of digging, how often did this happen in Notre Dame history, the 0-2 start? So I found that this season, 1978, Joe Montana's senior year, that that season marked the first time that the Irish had started 0-2 since 1963, probably one of the worst years in Notre Dame history, in football history, pardon me, when the team staggered to a 2-7 finish. However, before 1963, in doing some more digging, I found that the last time it had happened was in the year, take a deep breath, 1896. Notre Dame's coach that season was Frank E. Herring. What, you haven't heard of him? Well, for what it's worth, he doubled as the team's quarterback. So anyways, yes, the 1978 Irish found themselves 0-2. And, and only two other teams in Notre Dame history began with two losses. The 1963 team and the 1896 team. So if that doesn't win you a trivia night at your local pub someday, I don't know what will. But for what it's worth, Montana and the 1978 Irish didn't quit, despite the obvious adversity. They actually rattled off eight straight victories, even climbing back into the top ten in the country after having spent their third, fourth, and fifth game of the season completely unranked. At the end of the season, the final game, they dropped a close 27-25 game to the third-ranked University of Southern California in heartbreaking fashion on a last-second field goal. So the Irish, now 8-3 though, had gained enough respect to be invited to participate in the Cotton Bowl Classic for the second consecutive season, this time against the ninth-ranked 9-2 Houston Cougars to be played on January 1st 1979. And when looking at that 1978 season through a kind of a historical lens, you have to just really laud the Irish because for the most part, they had flourished in what was the most difficult schedule in the entire country. Irish opponents that season sported a 7-0-9 winning percentage. So basically, they won 71% of their games. But Mother Nature had something abnormal in store for the Irish and the Cougars. The Cotton Bowl, if you're otherwise unaware, is played in Dallas, Texas. Traditionally fairly warm, but Texas was slammed by its worst ice storm they had experienced in three decades in the days leading up to the game. According to CBS Sports' Sal Mayorana, quote, the freak attack by Mother Nature produced temperatures in the low 20s, wind chills in the negative numbers, and a thick coating of ice that turned Dallas into one big skating rink, end quote. Montana later said, When I pulled the covers over my head the night before the game, I fell asleep to the sound of ice pelting the hotel window. And when he got up the next morning and looked out the window, he said it was, quote, beautiful. Beautiful if you're spending the day looking out a window. This was a day to watch football from the comfort of your living room, not a day to play in it. End quote. But alas, Montana was to play in it, and didn't help that he had actually been stricken with influenza and his body was further weakened by the frigid temperature 
and strong winds. And speaking of, the high temperature that day, the day of the game, was 24 degrees. He later admitted that the weather paired with his illness had taken him mentally out of the game. Quote, This was the Cotton Bowl, my farewell to Notre Dame, but I didn't care much about the game during the first half, and frankly, neither did anyone else. End quote. Physically, Montana probably had no business taking a single snap in the contest. Though Notre Dame entered the game as slight favorites, all bets were truly off due to the inclement weather. CBS aired the game, and in the announcer booth were Lindsey Nelson, Frank Gleiber, and former Notre Dame great Paul Horning, the 1956 winner of the Heisman Trophy. But really, though, how cold was it? Reputedly, the stadium, even at its fullest during the game, was only at about half capacity. By the game's end, only 7,000 fans remained in their seats. I'm sure this is one of those cases where people probably didn't admit that they left early afterwards. But before the game started, and even during the breaks in-game, stadium workers would bring chisels out onto the field to try to chip ice off the artificial turf playing surface. It was that cold. Well, despite it all, Montana was one of the fiercest competitors in college football history. And he played, even leading the Irish to a 12-0 advantage a little more than just 10 minutes into the game. But from that point on, though, it was all Cougars all the time. Houston scored the next 20 points of the game, taking a 20-12 lead into the locker room at halftime. All right, so if Montana felt poorly before the game, he felt awful at halftime and was shivering uncontrollably in the locker room. So upon examination, team doctors found that his temperature was 96 degrees. For a male Montana's age at that time, this was about two and a half degrees cooler than it should have been. So doctors piled heated blankets on his shoulders, legs, and around his neck. Dr. Les Bodner then administered a remedy that would become famous, handing Montana a bowl of chicken noodle soup. As Bodner tells his account, quote, the whole story really began with a tradition in our family to hang stockings on Christmas Eve. When we went to the Cotton Bowl, we took our youngest daughter along on the trip. Well, she snuck into our room, and when we woke up in the morning, she had filled our stockings with apples, oranges, and a packet of Mrs. Grass noodle soup. Now, on road trips, we always carried along a little coffee maker to brew up tea and soup. But before the game, Bodner was told that a lineman was also sick, so he shoved the soup packet in his pocket and headed to the stadium. Bodner continues, quote, During the course of the game, Joe was the only player not wearing sleeves. Well, we got to the stadium, and I was told that the lineman had recovered and didn't need the soup, so I stuck it on a window ledge in the locker room. And when we came into the locker room at halftime, Montana was shaking like a leaf. We put, on, we put him on a cot and piled blankets and coats on top of him. Then I remembered the packet of chicken soup sitting on the windowsill, end quote. So Dr. Bodner brewed up the soup and gave it to Montana to drink. And Joe would sit in the locker room with the team's medical staff for most of the third quarter. He could hear the cheers. There had been two more Houston Cougars touchdowns, and they had extended their lead 34-12. to 12. 
Montana, I guess feeling a little bit better, better enough anyways, emerged from the locker room in the fourth quarter. And halfway through the fourth quarter, a little bit of a comeback started. Special teamer Tony Belden squeaked through the Cougars' punt formation, blocking the kick and was returned 33 yards for a touchdown. Montana, again, who was uncertain he'd even return until he started hearing the roar of the crowd following a couple Cougar touchdowns. He entered into the game and found his running back, Vegas Ferguson, a short pass to him for a two-point conversion. So the score was now 34-20, Cougars lead, halfway through the fourth quarter. But then the Irish defense turned stout, led by Steve Heimkreider, Bob Golick, Russ Browner, and... Luther Bradley, and they forced another Cougars punt. One of Montana's teammates once said, quote, when the pressure came, we knew he was a guy who wouldn't overheat, end quote. A very astute quote and assessment on this particular day when it was physically impossible for Montana to overheat. But Montana marched the team 61 yards in only five plays for yet another touchdown with four minutes and 15 seconds left on the clock. He punched in the score on a scramble himself from two yards out, and he hooked up with favorite target Chris Haynes for yet another two-point conversion. 34-28, Cougars lead. The next possession, a critical defensive play, was made by Notre Dame's Dave Waymer on third down, knocking a sure completion from the hands of a Cougar wide receiver that would have gone for a first down and then some, and probably would have iced the game. So the Cougars punted once again, giving the ball back to Montana and the Irish with 2 minutes and 25 seconds left on the clock. Montana, after two quick first downs, was absolutely leveled while scrambling. He coughed off the football, and Cougar defender Tommy Ebner pounced on the fumble. Cougar football. So at this point, the show looked to be over for the Irish, and the comeback magic looked to have run a little dry. But as famous college football pundit and former coach Lee Corso famously says, not so fast, my friend. The Irish defense forced yet another three and out, and the Irish burned their final timeout with 46 seconds left on the clock. Now here is the sequence. The Cougars from their own 24-yard line punted the ball back to Notre Dame. It was a 21-yard shank. But... The ball was returned to the Cougars as a member of the Irish was flagged for offsides who were undoubtedly in an all-out block punt formation. It was now fourth and one. Rather than punting again, Cougar head coach Bill Yeoman opted to keep his offense on the field, accurately reasoning if they could convert the fourth and short, the game was over. Yeoman calls for a running play and Cougars running back Emmett King takes the handoff but was stuffed for a no gain. Notre Dame had the ball back. 29 seconds left from the Cougars' 29-yard line. No timeouts. And for the first play, Montana, very, very gutsy fashion, kept the ball on a keeper around the right side, gaining 11 yards. Be mindful that it was the last time he had the ball in his hands, he did a similar play and was absolutely leveled, being separated from the ball. Next play, he threw to Haynes for another 10 yards, and Haynes had the wherewithal to get out of bounds to stop the game clock. So here we go. We have six seconds left, and the Irish had the ball on the Cougars' eight-yard line. After an incomplete pass, there were two seconds left. Montana conferred with his wide receiver, Haynes. 
they decided to run the exact same play. Only this time, Montana found Haynes in the end zone for Haynes' fourth catch of the day just as time expired. Touchdown and tie ball game. After the extra point was booted through the uprights, the Irish, spearheaded by their ill yet unconquerable quarterback, Joe Montana, had clinched the improbable win 35-34. to The Irish locker room after the game was euphoric. On hand was university president, Father Ted Hesburgh. You knew I'd squeeze Father Ted in here somewhere, but Father Ted walked up to Irish coach Dan Devine, extending his hand and said, quote, Put it there, pal. It was a great Notre Dame finish. Devine, grinning from ear to ear, answered that, well, we didn't get the Southern Cal game, so we had to get this one. Montana would be forever known as Joe Cool and the comeback kid due to his late game heroics. He was drafted in the third round of the 1979 National Football League draft by the San Francisco 49ers. He was selected to eight Pro Bowls and would win four Super Bowl titles as a 49er, with three of the games himself taking home the Game MVP award. He was inducted in the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 2000. Now, barring a rule change, he will never be inducted into the College Football Hall of Fame. Now, I've been really into sports for a really long time, but I had no idea until preparing for this episode that Joe Cool wasn't in the College Football Hall of Fame. That's because the Hall's rules dictate that only first-team All-Americans recognized by the NCAA are eligible for induction. So this wouldn't include Montana and, frankly, a slew of others who were not recognized as first-team All-Americans. So they are ineligible. So my my question to you all is, is, am I the only one who didn't know that? (laughs) I hope not. But there you have it, folks, a deep dive into the 1979 Cotton Bowl Classic, also known as the Chicken Soup Game, thanks to a star, albeit extremely ill, quarterback emerging from the locker room to lead his team to an improbable comeback, fueled by a bowl of chicken soup. And we will be right back. Well, I hope you enjoyed that one. Like many of you, I was familiar with the game, but really didn't know much beyond the short summaries or the write-ups, and I certainly didn't know how a packet of chicken soup actually ended up in the locker room, which is a pretty cool story, I gotta say. And I know that we just talked about how Montana is not in the College Football Hall of Fame, but you can actually see the original spoon and bowl Montana used, which is displayed at the College Football Hall. Hall of Fame. So something else that came up through my research was Montana's somewhat complicated relationship he had during his playing days with his hometown. A lot of folks really didn't care for him. Uh, Some legitimately didn't care for him because he didn't play for the hometown Steelers as Hanratty had, which seems like an odd critique since NFL players don't necessarily get to choose where they're drafted. But for whatever reason, that came up multiple times. And Uh, He was also kind of viewed as a bit aloof by his hometown and downright arrogant by his old high school football coach who, from my vantage point, seemed like I was like the pot calling the kettle black. But anyways, I don't want to include too much about that, but sincerely, 
Uh, it's almost unavoidable when you're doing Montana research. So it is a kind of interesting to, to look up as almost a social psychology case study. Okay, so what's next? I know many folks can't really travel right now due to travel restrictions, while others may have never been to Notre Dame's campus or South Bend in a long time or possibly ever. I'll be honest, until work travel took me regularly to South Bend uh, starting in 2013, I was completely unfamiliar with the city, landmarks, on campus, off campus, anything, etc. But anyways, I'm heavily considering doing a podcast version of a tour of campus, complete with bits of history and all of that, uh, complete with lesser-known Notre Dame football spots off campus as well. So, again, I think it would be a really cool break for, again, most of us, if not all of us, have travel restrictions, uh, or at least we're taking precautions. And so I think maybe this would be a cool idea during this quarantine period to kind of put you there, uh, if, not, uh, if not physically, then perhaps spiritually. But in addition, a review of the 2020 recruiting class episode is in the works, as well as the history and even mystery behind Notre Dame's fight song, The Victory March. So we do have a lot coming down the pike and a lot that I am really, really excited for. Before we conclude the program, please consider supporting the Notre Dame Football Heritage Project. And as I mentioned last episode, I'm not a comp compensated endorser by any means, but I am a big, big fan of this idea. So it was founded by Len Clark, who is a professional of journalism and who has taught at a number of universities, including the University of Notre Dame. So according to the website, the Notre Dame Football Heritage Project is a database that lists the name, hometown, year, and the opponent of uh, fans' first Irish Notre Dame football game. So the project's goal is to tell the Notre Dame football game day experience through the sharing of stories, pictures, and videos. And you get this really amazingly cool certificate to commemorate your first Notre Dame game. And as I mentioned again in the last episode, I actually ordered one for my son Grayson since he went to his first game last season. And some of you may remember that he appeared on an episode ahead of the game to kind of talk about it last year. So the certificate looks amazing in a frame. Grayson already has his hanging very proudly on his wall. And needless to say, I will be getting one for myself and to share some of my pictures and our pictures and our memories into the database. So jump over to, no, excuse me, jump over and visit mysportsheritage.com for more information and to see a sample of the certificate. It's only $10 too, and it's worth every penny. And as Len says on the website, the funds that come through through the, through the uh, project actually go towards the Era Parsegian Medical Research Fund and other charitable causes too. So it's a great idea. And... And you know, the reason why I think I really do like this initiative and I like the idea of it is that Notre Dame has been accused over the years of being like extremely elitist uh, from time to time, particularly the football program and being kind of snooty. And I think that's probably every big time college football program. And you know, that's probably unavoidable. And but, but that's what I really, really like. Every time I walk into Augie's locker room, I think if you're a f listener of the show, you understand how big of a fan I am of Jim Augustine and his, his store, uh, but also Lens Notre Dame Football Heritage Project, and I guess even to a smaller degree, this podcast. The idea is if you love Notre Dame and you are passionate about your fandom, find a place that is going to make it as accessible to you as possible. And Augie's Locker Room has just this unbelievably cool collection, and you can literally touch pieces of Notre Dame history, and he will tell you about them. If you jump over to uh, Lens Notre Dame Football Heritage Project, 
you know, you're going to be able to connect with other Irish fans and kind of do so in a very meaningful fashion as you're remembering your first Irish football game. And I guess in this podcast, you know, my goal is to always try to be as grounded as possible in my fandom. And Notre Dame, I mean, Notre Dame just lends itself to the history. And that's that's always been kind of my take on, on sports. It's make it as accessible to you as possible. And as I mentioned, uh, it all goes to a good cause too. So it's kind of a long-winded thing there. But anyways, all right, Irish fans, I reckon I should probably sign off. So please stay well, folks. Stay at home as much as humanly possible. And thank you again to our Consensus All-Americans for sponsoring this episode. One more time, Brad Glazer from Williamsburg, Indiana, Rob Drudy from Fort Wayne, Indiana, and Michael Finan from Rutherford, New Jersey. Couldn't have done it without you. Thank you so very much. And if you're listening, don't forget to share this with your friends who may enjoy it. This has been Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. And as always, in kindness, I am your host, Alex Painter. And finally, go Irish.